I'm Sean Fennessy, and this is The Big Picture, a conversation show about fast cars and faster IP. We're celebrating the Christian Bale, Matt Damon vehicle, Ford versus Ferrari today. Later in the show, I have a long and fun conversation with James Mangold. He's the director of Ford versus Ferrari and Logan and Walk the Line and many other very good movies. But first, we are going to talk about a, a subject near and dear to our hearts. We're going to talk about Matt Damon, and I'm joined by a couple of Matt Damon super fans. Amanda Dobbins and Chris Ryan. Hi, guys. What's up, Sean? Hello, Sean. How is it going? You have the best of me on this podcast. I'm so excited about that. <laughs> I, before we began recording, was thinking about what it is that I love about Matt Damon and what makes him such a wonderful movie star. And truthfully, I don't really know. And I was hoping we could start our conversation right there by saying, why is Matt Damon so good? And why is he so frequently in good movies? Which seems obvious but maybe you guys can help me understand. I have a cute answer based on what you just said, which is I think the fact that you don't know is part of his power. Mm. Matt Damon has made a lot in his life and in the interviews that he's tried to do of the fact that he doesn't want to be a movie star or a tabloid star, that the less you know about an actor, the more powerful that actor is because they can disappear into roles. And he's done a pretty good job of it. I mean, we know that he has a wife and we know that he has three daughters and we know that he's best friends with Ben Affleck. But otherwise, you don't see him in paparazzi shots. He is pretty great in interviews of just avoiding all questions. And he's hard to pin down as a person. And that does allow him to try on a lot of different hats or roles, as the case may be. Yeah, I mean, this is honestly, so we're doing top five Matt Damon movies. And I I think this is the hardest one I've done out of all the pods that we've done where we've done top fives, harder than Scorsese. And I was looking through his filmography and there are 26 Matt Damon movies that I like. Like, at least like. How many do you love? Like, at least a dozen. Okay. I think. That's like, a high percentage. Now, here's the thing. They, I don't always love them because Matt Damon is in them. Mm-hmm. But he happens to be in them. And I, and I was trying to figure out, like, okay, so like, you know, by comparison, I would say like going through Tom Hanks's filmography, I liked 22 of those movies. But I was trying to think about, like, what is it? What is it about Matt Damon? And, you know, I, I kept coming back to Edward Norton because, you know, I think you did a great interview with him on The Big Pick, and he's been around a lot with Motherless Brooklyn, and they were in Rounders together. And if you had been taking bets when Rounders came out about who's going to have a better career, I think it would even be foolish to bet on Damon there. Like, Edward Norton was probably considered the best actor of his generation in and around that time, American History X, Fight Club, um, even up through 25th Hour, I think you can make the argument that he's like, man, he's just going to be like the the guy. And then Damon's obviously far outpaced him. And why is that? Like, it's not like, da- it's not like Damon has ever become like a much better actor than Edward Norton, but he's been in much better movies and he's made much better choices. And in some ways, I wonder whether or not Damon's gift, aside from the relatability that Amanda was talking about, is his taste. And the fact that he is a movie star who doesn't mind being like the fifth guy in Ocean's Eleven or the fourth person in Contagion or the second person in The Departed. He understands how to be the in movies that bring out the best in him, even if he isn't always the best part of those movies. I also found this to be a challenging exercise, choosing the top five, because of what Chris is saying. There are a ton of great Matt Damon performances. There are also a ton of great Matt Damon stunts mm-hmm. and cameos mm-hmm. on this show in the past. The three of us, Amanda and I especially, have chosen stunty objects as stand-ins in the top fives. For Will Smith, we would choose one scene from Bad Boys or a performance on The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Matt Damon is a little bit different. He has had some TV stunt work. His, his appearances on Jimmy Kimmel could count for that. 
But for the most part, he appears in a lot of movies. He is a very, very present figure through the last essentially 25 years Mm -hmm. of American movies. Some of them are blockbusters. Some of them are IP. Some of them are awards fair. Some of them are just sort of like domestic dramas that we don't see as much of. And some of them are science fiction epics. Like he really is in every kind of movie. He touches every sort of thing. He's been in an HBO movie and he's been in a Christopher Nolan movie. He's been in, uh, you know, he's appeared in a movie for one minute and he's appeared in a movie for nonstop for two and a half hours. Mm-hmm. It's kind of an amazing versatility. And I, it, it has it made this really challenging for me. I had a hard time as well. And I found myself... I wanted to make an interesting list versus wanting to represent, like, actually the best of Matt Damon. And there are a list of stunty things that I have that are under honorable mentions. But he's done so many different things in so many different quadrants that it feels cheap to put, like, say, I'm fucking Matt Damon, which you mentioned, and which was a pretty interesting moment in, I mean, that feud, as Matt Damon talked about on Bill's, uh, Bill Simmons's podcast this week is like 10 years running now and is a source of comic fuel to them. And that's fascinating that someone can be like in on the punchline of a joke for that long. But he's also worked with pretty much every great director or every great male director at this point and tries a lot of things. And so just trying to wrap my arms around everything, all the different types of movies that he's done from like pure blockbuster to like, art house 90s to all the different types of like roles that he's played it kind of becomes it's hard and it's not like the most editor interesting list that I've ever made if that makes any sense I think what I'm trying to say here is I my line list is really basic but that's okay and maybe in some ways Matt Damon is also basic is rude kind of basic but he fills he's at the center I guess, of the culture. Yeah, he doesn't have, and it's funny that you mentioned Tom Hanks, Chris, because he doesn't have that Hanksian everyman quality. He got famous playing a genius. And so there is something a little bit elevated and distant from him. He reminds me a little bit more of like the Steve McQueen kind of movie star or even Denzel Washington, where you're like, there's like an otherness there that I don't quite have access to. And part of it is because of what you identified, I think, a minute that we just don't know that much about him. But it's like, it kind of goes back to that Northern thing I'm thinking about where it's like Matt Damon rarely dominates the movie that he's mm-hmm. in. Like even in the movies that like you talk about Denzel, Denzel is like crushes those, like he That's crushes true. Glory, he crushes Crimson Tide against Gene Hackman. He's just going toe to toe. Matt Damon never really does that. I mean, you can see it in Ford versus Ferrari. In, in this movie, it is ultimately, it becomes Christian Bale's show. Mm-hmm. Even though his role and what Damon does is absolutely central because Carol Shelby, the famous car racer and car designer, and is an interesting figure in the history of American motors. But he takes a backseat, almost literally, to Christian Bale in the movie, and he seems comfortable doing that. He seems comfortable playing third fiddle to Clooney and Pitt. He seems comfortable popping up for five minutes in Interstellar. It's kind of a, there's just something very rare about the way that he's organized his career that I think makes this kind of a fun conversation. I'm I'm kind of eager to share my honorable mentions and supporting Hall of Fames, but I also think we could step on each other's lists. Mm-hmm. So let's just say this is a person who's been nominated for five Academy Awards. And I think his nominations actually speak to the variety that you find in his career. So he's been nominated twice for Best Actor for Goodwill Hunting and The Martian. He won for neither. Once for Supporting Actor for Invictus. You mm-hmm. guys remember Invictus? I do. I do. I imagine I, it's not on either of your lists. I mean, I remember seeing it. I don't remember really what happened. I don't in think it. I saw Invictus. Okay, that's amazing. It's a Clint Eastwood film it's, about I, rugby. It's amazing that I, I didn't see it. Invest, Invictus. Yes. 
Um, he's also nominated and won. Goes to Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. For best original screenplay, Ben Affleck yeah. for Good Will Hunting, yeah. and he was nominated for best picture for Manchester by the Sea. Can I say one honorable mention that I don't think will step on anyone's list? But you could put the Damon and Affleck Oscar speech on a top five list. Absolutely. And for anyone else, I might because that, in terms of that, might be the greatest Oscar speech. Let's hear it right now. Um, you know, we're, we're we're just really two young guys who ha- uh, we're fortunate enough to be involved with a lot of great people wh- whom uh, it's coming upon us to. There's no way we're doing this in less than 20 seconds. <laughs> who, on, upon whom it's incumbent of us to thank um, Harvey Weinstein, who believed in us and made this movie. Gus Van Sant for brilliant direction. Robin Williams, who delivered some great lines. Minnie Driver, whose performance was brilliant. Stellan Skarsgård, who was great. Your brother, um, <laughs> my brother Casey, who's brilliant in the Cole movie. Hazard. Cole Hauser, my mother, John, John and Matt's mother, the most beautiful women here. My dad right morning. over there. And, um, Jack said hi to you. And, uh, right. who, who, who else? Uh, John uh, Gordon from Miramax. John Gordon. Uh, Chris Moore produced Chris the Moore. movie. And, Chris uh, Moore. Patrick Weitzel, the best agent in Hollywood. Yeah, and, uh, Patrick Weitzel. And Cuba Gooding for showing us how to give our acceptance speech. And, uh, um, and all our friends and, and family. And, and everybody back in and, Boston watching us tonight. And thank you so much, the city of Boston. And, 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 and God, I know we're forgetting somebody. Whoever we forgot, we love you. And we, we love you. you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I think much. it's pretty good. It's pretty. The, the, I think what you want is youthful exuberance, mm-hmm. and that's what that that speech delivers. Uh, should we should we dive in? Mm-hmm. What do we need to say? Anything more before we get further in? No, let's get into it. Amanda, why don't you kick us off? Okay. Number five. I think this will be unexpected, but I'm going with the departed at number five. How the fuck do you know that? Where'd they put you? Hey, Frank. I gotta find myself. You're telling me, sonny boy. I gotta find the guy you got in the department. Okay, this is on my list. Um, I, full disclosure, don't totally understand what happens in this movie. I Like, I still don't. If I had to diagram it and someone's life depended on it, that person would die. But what I do understand is Matt Damon hitting on Vera Farmiga in an elevator. And there is something about the charisma and he is a little bit louder in this movie. I think you were mentioning he kind of takes a back seat or he's often quite reserved or is often hiding something or kind of working on the the lines between public or and private or mm-hmm. just what what a character or a person would want anyone to know about them. But this is kind of I mean this is a definitely a, du- a duplicitous character, but that duplicity is like baked into the text. Mm-hmm. And I always love it when people are commenting on themselves. And this is not just commenting on like likable Matt Damon, but also like Matt da- Boston Matt Damon. Mm-hmm. It's the fucking Boston Olympics in this. Yeah, movie. exactly. Yeah. And it's it's more charisma than usual from Matt Damon. He doesn't like to show it. He has it and can you know do it in a Jimmy Kimmel video or at the Oscars. But this he kind of gets to shine a bit and. I think it's pretty fun. It's a bunch of immensely likable actors being sort of unlikable to the point of likability in The Departed. Yeah, and he's juxtaposed with Leo and, you know, their whole mirroring of one another throughout the movie, sometimes quite literally, where Leo is somebody who's so vulnerable and is basically, even though he's undercover, quote unquote, there's no secrets with him in in his Vera Farmiga therapy sessions. He's just like, I just want the pills. He's so open. And everything about Damon is closed off, even though he's pretending to be spit shine Johnny Perfect. One day I'm going to be a congressman. Yeah. And I think that duplicity that you're talking about is what I reacted to. This is my number four on the list. Because going back and rewatching this movie, first of all, it's just one of the easiest rewatches of all time. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's a warm bath. But the scene between him and Alec Baldwin when Baldwin is hitting golf balls. 
and they're talking about why it's good to be married. Yeah. And he's like, you know, makes him makes him know that your cock works. And he's like, yeah, that's working. <laughs> overtime. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, thank you. Working overtime. <laughs> and it's so transparently slimy and phony and dishonest. Yeah. You know, there's yeah. obviously something insecure about this character. There's something, there's like a, an absence of masculinity, an emasculated quality to Damon's character that is so good and requires a kind of like a like a self-awareness, a comfort with your own persona to take a part like that and to play it well. And he plays it so well in this movie. It's one of the, I don't often think of him as a great actor, even though he routinely is a great actor, but this is a really great acting performance I by think him. it's his best performance. This is, it's my number. Oh, oh, I take it's it okay. No, but oh, I, I, I think No, sorry. but I think it's, I think exactly what you're saying. I couldn't resist saying like, it is his best pure performance, I think. In, in a lot of ways, he inhabits a role in a way. Yeah. So that's that's good to know. We'll we'll, we, we'll sure. let you vamp yeah. on it even more as we go later on down the down the down the list. Chris, what's your number five? My number five is Courage Under Fire. She was she was probably killed by small arms before the napalm ever hit. Either way, she never she never could have survived that stomach wound. You think that matters? which is a movie that he was in in 1996. Uh, it stars Denzel Washington and Meg Ryan. It is absolutely the kind of movie they don't really make anymore. It's basically a legal thriller slash military thriller where, um, you know, I guess we're doing spoilers for all these movies, right? Yeah, I think a 23-year-old drama Ed directed by Ed Zwick. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, Meg Ryan plays a character who dies in combat in the um, in the, the Iraq War and... Uh, they're basically going to posthumously award her the Congressional Medal of Honor, but Denzel Washington is investigating whether or not she, in fact, deserves it. There's a lot of confusion about what happened during uh, this this conflict that she was in, this this battle that she was in. And uh, Matt Damon plays the medic who is assigned to work with her, and he uh, gives initially that like, he gives like a regular like kind of like she was great, you know, like that this the, she totally deserves it statement in the beginning. And then, you know, as the mystery kind of unravels, we find out that his character is a heroin addict who is like live, like reclusively off in the woods somewhere. And Denzel Washington finally tracks him down and they have this scene where we find Damon is completely emaciated. It's one of like the great physical transformation roles that he's ever gone through. But it's like the physical transformation is kind of aside to, from the, the emotional performance that he gives. And it, he does this incredible scene with Denzel and talk about going to toe-to-toe with people. Washington completely cedes the scene to him. And it's this beautiful kind of revelatory moment. And I, I really love this movie. And it's a, a really interesting what-if of Matt Damon character actor because he was among these guys like Affleck and Leo and and Wahlberg and, and um, Edward Norton who were all going for the same kind of roles at the same time. Um, I think... Norton talked to Bill about going for Rainmaker and losing that to Damon. Um, you know, all these guys going for the same roles and you don't know how it would have broken in any other kind of way. And there's a world in which Damon is just kind of like chipping away at these like small character parts for for the next 10, 20 years. So I, I, I really, I always love this movie. I love that movie too. I'm afraid to stomp on anybody's list by suggesting that he has other great supporting sure. roles yeah. like this. I mean, I, I had a, I almost did all a bunch of supporting roles at number five, and then that seemed like cheating. But yes, he does. I, no one has True Grit here, right? No. I mean, he's I so like good in True Grit. 
and it's the similar thing. He plays Labeef, which is one of the, and he's hilarious. Yeah. And he is transformative. He doesn't look like Matt Damon. He doesn't sound like Matt Damon. He does have kind of that like shit-eating grin on his face that you can recognize, but he it, it's it's in the same vein of he'll kind of pop up and transform in a way that you were not expecting in movies. And he does that once every five to ten years, which I appreciate. Yeah, does, was anyone brave enough to put Margaret on the list? I, 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 I do have it in my supporting hall You have it? Fame. Okay, yeah. all right. But, but, I mean, that's it, exactly. And it's it's haunting. I almost did it. And then, and part of it is because he shows up and it's definitely Matt Damon, but it's also a Matt Damon that you never want to see. Yes, and, exactly. And and is horrifying. In, and, and that's because he's very good. Yeah, I... Great movie. Upsetting movie. My number five might be a Matt Damon that no one else wants to see, but I still like it. And it's a movie called Dogma. Organized religion destroys who we are by inhibiting our actions, by inhibiting our decisions, out of out of fear of some some intangible parent figure who who shakes a finger at us from thousands of years ago and says and says, do it, do it and I'll fucking spank you. Which is a Kevin Smith movie. Punch it in. Uh, the fucking the the askewverse, the, the, the view askewniverse is, is alive and well here on the big picture. Um, here's the plot of Dogma: Ben Affleck and Matt Damon play two fallen angels mm-hmm. who are trying to exploit a loophole to get back into heaven. Yeah, that's the that's the plot of this movie, starring a lot of movie stars. That was made at the height of Miramax's power. That is essentially a an assault on modern concepts of religion. That is also like a pot comedy. Mm -hmm. In Uh, which Alanis Morissette plays God. She does. Uh, Not necessarily the best movie. Mm -mm. Not necessarily um, holding up well. But it is the underrated Ben and Matt duo performance. It's it's the movie in which they get to talk more than any other movie they made, including Good Will Hunting. And I feel like we've been longing for... A Ben and Matt movie What's for a long time. Called? Is it Moo Burger? Movie Burger? Movie Burger, yeah. Yeah, when yeah. they go and they they address like the board of directors about their sins. Yeah, and then they and murder they all them. of them. Yeah. yeah, it's just a wild, bizarre movie. The movie opens with a great conversation between their two characters, these two angels. And it happens inside of an airport. And they're, the, the, the film opens with Matt Damon convincing a uh, a nun to give up her faith by exploiting all of her insecurities about religion. And then Ben and Matt's characters observe humanity in this airport and they explain how it's the only place in the world where we see purity of emotion. It's the only place in the world where people can be authentically happy to see each other when, they re- when they're reunited. Now, this is a, this is a pre-9-11 movie. Yeah. And so that's not what airports are anymore. But it was a reminder of a, of a, different, kind of, a different kind of America, a different kind of airport in this country. <laughs> Delivered to me by Matt Damon. And uh, this is list making at its finest. Yeah. Dogma, number five. Thank you for bringing wow. airports back, Dogma. Appreciate you. <laughs> Can I tell a very quick anecdote about Dogma? Yeah. So 1997 is Goodwill Hunting and also Titanic. And if you were a teenage girl in America in 1997 and you were interested in men, then you really had to... It was an identity test. Were you going to pick Leo and Titanic or were you going to pick Matt Damon and Goodwill Hunting? Right. And most people went with Leo, and I, like young uh, adversarial Amanda, went with Matt Damon and felt really strongly about it. And I was just like, Matt Damon is the one. Can Screw you break this. down? Like, did you have like a lot of interactions about this? Did you have like fights with friends about this? I mean, I wouldn't say there were like fights, but definitely discussions. I mean, this is the era when people my age were going to see Titanic like mm-hmm. eight times in theaters. Like I, that definitely happened, and it was kind of you were staking out 
I mean, it's just like now where who you like is a sure. claim to who you are. So there was some fighting about it. And I was like, no, 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 Matt Damon and also Ben Affleck. They really got it. And then like dogma comes out and I'm like, you're going to see. Here it is. And then being a teenage girl going to see Dogma and being like, this is our guy. It's not what you want. It's not what you want. Sean and I don't know anything about that because we were just hanging out at airports. Yeah. <laughs> just crushing a movie burger. Yeah. Hanging out. I did, you know, talking I, about Catholicism. It's weird, but in high school, my friends and I, we were like sometimes when we were, because you're looking for stuff to do because you can't go to bars yet, we would go to the airport. Just like walk around. Because <laughs> you could still, yeah. What would you do at the airport? We'd get like a burger. We'd like, like okay. just like, because they would be kind of weird. Philly airport. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I, I can't tell if you're fucking with me. I'm or not. really not. Yeah. Did you like watch the play? You know, like you go play mini golf. Like, how many times can you go to mini golf or the mall? So, like, sometimes you'd mix it up and go to the airport. I gotta say, I didn't see this one coming. <laughs> <laughs> are you like going into the special lounges? Or are you watching? You could the do planes? whatever you wanted because it would be like kind of late at night and there was no rules. Like, you could just go up to the gates. And then do and then what happened? Uh, it's just like you just kind of were like, isn't this weird? We're in this like you know public space, but like going through adolescence. Did you ever accidentally wake up like in Austria one day? <laughs> you know, just, like, somehow I found myself they on a plane. They still had like the ticketing process, so it wasn't like you could just hop flights. Gotcha. You know? Okay, interesting. Well, at, as usual, Kevin Smith, seer of seers, <laughs> prognosticator of prognosticators. Okay, so departed, courage under fire, dogma. Yes, yeah. number four, Amanda. Okay, born identity. Second to me, I was wise. No, I, I don't... You the papyrus. I don't have any papers. I, I lost my mind. Papyrus. I have a verloren. Okay. This has got to be on Christmas This is on my list. Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry that no, I'm just... No, let's do it together. Like no, this is, this is what it's all about. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's all about Amanda Vulture and Chris's top two. Yeah, no, I feel bad. Um, I think there are very few other people that could play this role and have you actually, A, empathize with the character... B, believe it when he's just like confused and I don't know what's going on. He's Matt Damon is definitely borrowing on all of his like American boy next door charm, even as he is um, doing all of the physical stuff that indicates that he's a serious assassin and pretty much anyone else would figure it out. But he he is so bewildered and 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 kind of reserved, as we've been talking about, like not in touch with what's happening um, that you believe it. It's also the whole romantic plot is awesome. Is awesome and also really does not work unless it's someone as hot and likable as Matt Damon. He's like, can I cut your hair? Yeah, Yeah. and you're just like, yes. (laughs) Honestly, if Matt Damon and Born Identity came in today and was like, I need you to drive me to wherever the hell we're going, and it's very clear Temecula, and we've just been in an embassy, yeah, (laughs) and it's very and it's been on lockdown, and there's some legal altercations. Like, I would do it today. Yeah, like. With everything in my life, as it is organized now, I'd just be like, see you guys later. I'm sorry to my husband. I will drive that Matt Damon across the country. And that's powerful. Would you let him cut your hair? Yes. Okay. <laughs> that's a true testament to love. I'm also going to say, Matt Damon That has, is like one of the hottest scenes. Yeah, and he does not always have believable romantic interests. I think it's not a coincidence that I've chosen Departed in Fort Identity <laughs> because of those are the two times where you're like, yo, Matt Damon. Yeah. So... Yeah, I would. I would recreate that. What about you? Would you let him cut your hair? I, whatever there's left to cut, for sure. <laughs> I mean, I think that uh, it's worth noting a couple of things. One is how shocking Born Identity was when it came out. So not only in terms of the Matt Damon trajectory, where he had had a couple of years of being like, it may not happen for him as a movie star. Like, All the Pretty Horses mm. was like a sort of historic disaster, yeah. which I think he's often talked about being the one that got away and like the Billy Bob Thornton 
original version of that movie would have been his favorite movie mm-hmm. that he'd ever been in. And he'd done Ocean's Eleven where he'd been a supporting actor, but like The Majestic, I think he's just got a cameo in. He does Jerry, which is, you know, not a big movie by any means. Um, and then he's just kind of like waiting around in there. And then Bourne comes out and Bourne was a new kind of action movie. It felt incredibly fresh and of the moment. It was the first real like blockbuster I saw s- since The Matrix at that point where I was like, this has something new to say within this genre of movie, even this kind of action espionage genre. And the choices that they made to make it with somebody who was not a traditional Keanu-looking action star and to cast Franco Patente like, as, the, as the romantic lead, and they were very like clear about like it has to be a European actress that nobody knows or it won't be believable. Uh, it's, it's, it's one of my favorite like uh, Damon performances easily. It's, I think it's number three for me. I don't. I don't have a big relationship with the Bourne franchise, and I, I can't say I, I understand why I don't, but I don't. I've, do you do you like Bond movies? I like them. Yeah, but you're Chris. That's another thing that Chris and I share. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I I think um, I I don't. I honestly can't put my finger on it. I I think I probably like the Bourne Legacy more than I like a lot of the other ones because of the the feel and the filmmaking. I never quite the Paul Greengrass Matt Damon connection. Right. I assume no one here has Green Zone on their list. No. Which is kind of an interesting movie. Maybe hasn't aged that well in light of everything that we've learned. Not on like Zero Dark Thirty, but that style of filmmaking for whatever reason just never clicked with me mentally. So it's not it does not appear on it's my just list. Worth, and it's also worth noting is the same way that it saves his career in some ways, it easily sets up the next 20 years because mm-hmm. he makes three of these movies. They're giga- gigantic hits and he's essentially allowed to go do whatever he wants for the rest of his life because of these. It does set him up in an interesting way as a, just an action figure. You know, he goes on to make movies like Green, like Green Zone, like Elysium. Mm-hmm. Like a, he does. I don't think he would have. Ne- he certainly wouldn't have, wouldn't have had that kind of opportunity to be a sort of like physical movie star, which I guess every great movie star ultimately has a that kind of versatility. Uh, what is your number four, Chris? My number four is Contagion. Mr. Amoff, I'm sorry. Your wife is dead. I mean, I, I just, I just saw her. We, we, we were just at home. Is there somebody that we can call? Someone who you think should be here with you? So I oh. wanted to celebrate his collaboration with Steven Soderbergh. He's made eight movies with him. Wow. I think. Is that um, true? Yeah. yeah. And, but you, you kind of wouldn't know because sometimes he's he pops up. He's informant and he's in every shot. And sometimes he's just in a few scenes. Um, I really always loved what Soderbergh had to say about Damon's performance in Contagion. Uh, and for those who don't know, it's about a pandemic virus outbreak. And it's very much in the style of other Steven Soderbergh, Scott Burns collaborations where it's kind of like almost like a season of TV in one movie. It, it kind of an ensemble that globe, globe trots and tells the story from a bunch of different perspectives. But Damon plays this guy, Mitch, whose wife is played by Gwyneth Paltrow, who dies, I think, in, like, the second or third scene of the movie. Yeah. Fantastic and death they, scene. They and Yeah, exactly. And open. is his whole thing, and when we talk about this sort of the, the relatability of Matt Damon, the every manness of him is in this movie. And Soderbergh's always said, like, he never, it never felt like he was aware that the cameras were on. Like, he was doing this part where, and obviously he just wanted to be in a Steven Soderbergh movie, said he read the script and just wanted to, like, take any part he could. But his reaction to Gwyneth Paltrow's death is some of the best acting he's done. It completely, it's just like this warped thing where you're like, this movie's breaking all the rules. Like Gwyneth Paltrow's not supposed to die. She's not supposed to have cheated on the Matt Damon character. He's not supposed to kind of be grappling with this 
feelings of like, I'm not, I'm obviously not glad my wife's dead, but I'm complicated now that I know she was cheating on me and all this stuff. And his reaction to her death and his performance throughout the movie is fantastic. That's a really good one. What What's your, what's your favorite Soderbergh Damon combo? So I was going to say, and I was very self-conscious about this. I don't have a single Soderbergh performance on my top oh. five. And I, I mean, spoiler, sorry. I don't either. And I love Steven Soderbergh, one of my favorite working directors. Yeah. And I was trying to think about that. I had Ocean's 12 on at one point because, as we all know, Ocean's 12, delightful movie. And that is when Matt Damon gets to do the most. And he has the scene with Julia Roberts. And he's like, I, I wasn't in four weddings and a funeral, <laughs> which I, I, delights me. But again, he's the fourth, fifth person in that movie. Mm -hmm. And he's being really funny and definitely playing into the the idea of Matt Damon, but it's subtle. And, you know, I, but I rewatched it and didn't put it on the list. I rewatched The Informant and didn't put it on the list. I think The Informant is like his his biggest or most like capital I important mm -hmm. Soderbergh uh, collaboration. And I'm sorry if I'm stepping on anybody's list by talking about that one. I think there is something about, you know, Sean and I talk, and all three of us talk a lot about Soderbergh and what I like about him is how he makes it look so easy. Mm -hmm. He is so relaxed, but there's something about Soderbergh taking, not even taking a back seat, but making it be very chill that when combined with Matt Damon's inherent chillness, backseat yeah. chillness, it just doesn't become as essential to me somehow, even though I really enjoy it. No, that makes sense. I mean, he's he's definitely caught Soderbergh at a specific, specifically experimental phase of his career. I mean, he appears in Che Part 2. Uh, a bunch of other movies, obviously. I don't want to like say any that, that Sean picked, but yeah. I didn't pick any. Oh, I wow. mean, I, I I love The Informant. It is in my, it's definitely in my top not five. Not behind the cat Candelabra either? But, but not behind the Candelabra either, which is great and probably deserving of a rewatch. Yeah. I haven't seen it since it first aired. And I remember loving it. And Damon is similarly to the performances you're describing. Like he's just hilarious in Behind the Candelabra. It's a great comic performance with dramatic strokes, but... I, I don't know. I Maybe, once again, maybe just taking Soderbergh for granted. Maybe just not giving him the credit he deserves. Eight performances together yeah. is a lot. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. My number four was The Departed. So we can go on to Amanda's okay. number three. My number three is The Martian. Mark Watney, astronaut. I'm entering this log for the record uh, in case I don't make it. Uh, it is oh six fifty three. On Soul 19, and I'm alive. Okay. Obviously. This is some movie star shit. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what it is. And we all said it at the time, and we were talking a little bit before the podcast about the uh, the various phases of Matt Damon's career. And this comes after a quieter phase is yeah. maybe the kindest way mm -hmm. to put it. And Parallels with Bourne in some ways. Yes. And it's also in a lot of ways, this is his... This is his Tom Hanks movie. I mean, obviously, like a guy stuck in space or, you know, stuck on an island and kind of carrying the movie. It is, to me, his most everyman, likable, just like rooting for him type of... It's his broadest performance, I guess, on my list. And it's still, even though it, he is definitely like a hero in this movie, there is a little sarcasm. There is a little punchiness to it that I think is an underrated aspect of Matt Damon. I, as I was doing prep for this, I realized he gets compared to Jimmy Stewart a lot. And with all respect to Matt Damon, who seems like a, a really lovely, good person, he's got a little more edge than Jimmy Stewart. I, I completely agree. I don't agree. think people give him enough credit for it. And I think you can, this is a great balance of that wholesomeness and 
and also the the slight arrogance yeah. that that makes his performances work for this me. This is essentially a $100 million vlog, this movie. <laughs> and you can really easily go through this movie and just like, who else could have done this? Really? Like who, like, I don't think DiCaprio could do the potatoes scene. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, I'm sure he could. But like, the idea is essentially that despite all the other stuff that's happening with like, what's going on down on the ground and like there's the great special effects and the panoramic shots of what's supposed to be Mars. It's essentially just like a two-hour movie where you're like watching this guy try to farm mm-hmm. and not get too addicted to opiates when he's like sprinkling them onto his potatoes. So it's like a complete and pure test of his charm. Yeah, I think that you you both have put your fingers on something, which is that he has a unique combination, unique really to any movie actor that I can think of, of friendliness coupled with overconfidence. Mm-hmm. And that is kind of suffused in a lot of his movies. You know, Tom Hanks is effortlessly friendly. You know, Christian Bale is hugely stormy. Denzel is a sort of powerful and, and distinctive. Matt Damon is like kind of a shithead, but kind of your best friend in mm-hmm. every movie. And that's such a that's such a unique ability. Chris, what about you? What's your number so three? Three was born. Okay. Three yeah. was number born. My number three, I assume someone's gonna have this, yeah. is the talented Mr. Ripley. Mm-hmm. You're so white. <laughs> Do you ever see a guy so white, March? <laughs> Gray, actually. It's just an undercoat. <laughs> Say again? <laughs> you know, a primer. <laughs> That's fun. Margie likes that because she's so white. Too. Yes, I do, and you're not funny. Well, you should come and have lunch with us before you go. Yes, Sure, anytime. Well, coincidence. <laughs> number one i had i had a strong yeah. feeling about that that's fine um I don't speaking of evil fuckers you know <laughs> speaking of yeah. of shaded yeah. and complex and dark and interesting decision making in a career you know to choose this part mm-hmm. at this time to subvert our expectations of the kinds of movies to to un jimmy stewart yourself mm-hmm. in this way by taking on this project by working with someone like anthony Mangella, by letting yourself be pitched with that alabaster skin and those, you know, those cheeky glasses against that golden god Jude Law in the movie. You know, like, really an amazing choice for an actor of his caliber, one that I think most would really not take. They wouldn't let themselves be this sort of retiring, malevolent, sort of freakish figure like Ripley. But Ripley is is a freak Mm -hmm. and obviously a murderous freak. And so he's just, it's such a, it's such a almost like perfect movie and he's so captivating throughout that it would be impossible for me to not put the movie on the list. Yeah. To me, it's his fullest transformation because, as you were just talking about, he does have an overconfidence. Mm-hmm. And there is certainly an overconfidence to aspects of that character, but it does hinge on an insecurity that you can't really find anywhere else in Matt Damon. That is, that's not an insecure man. And no. more credit to him. But it's really the only thing that that performance has in common with any of his other performances is that it's an intelligent character. And Matt Damon is very smart and projects being very smart in almost all of his movies. But otherwise, it's it's just like someone else took the stage. And, you know, I think it's pretty impressive. He's incredible. No no Ripley love for you? It's just not in my top. I I love that movie, but it just didn't make top five. Uh, Should we go to number two? Sure. What's your number two? Well, as I said, Talented Miss Ripley is number one, so... Goodwill Hunting will be number two. My number two as well. Didn't make my list. You ever think about getting remarried? My wife's dead. 
hence the word remarried. She's dead. Yeah. Well, I think that's a super philosophy, Sean. I mean, that way you could actually go through the rest of your life without ever really knowing anybody. What the f- well, I'm trying to be interesting. I know. Like, <laughs> yeah, see, I, the, I went in the other direction. I was like, I'm not going to be interesting. I have, a, I have a reason for that, though. Okay. But you, you, you should see, so you, you're doing goodwill hunting now. So say, say what you were going to say. Yeah. I mean, this is the quintessential Matt Damon performance. It, I, I was trying to be interesting by not putting it number one. And I think there's probably, it will, it will be the performance for all time. And it obviously introduces him into the consciousness. It is. There's the intelligence. There is the total prickheaded, you know, dickheadedness. There is the emotional release at the end. It's definitely someone who is hiding a lot. There is there is duplicity in it. Mm-hmm. And then finally, at the end, you get like the big cathartic release. Um, looks quite handsome, which I really think Matt Damon's handsomeness has been underrated uh, for the past thirty years. And I and it all and it just sets the rest of the career and also. Every performance you watch after Goodwill Hunting, you're comparing to Goodwill sure. Hunting and to who you think Matt Damon is and the type of roles you expect him to take and the type of roles you don't expect him to take. The it, fact that he's even been able to transcend this, the fact that he's able to have like a useful career after this because it's such an iconic role mm-hmm. that people probably still, there's a huge swath of people probably think his name is Will still, you know, like is is a testament to to his abilities. Yeah, and I think he, even though The Martian is a great film and the Bourne movies are probably his biggest hits. I think he works best as a counterpart. Like, I think in The Departed, having someone like Leo and and to a lesser extent, Vera Farmiga, in, even in movies like Dogma, in, in Ripley with Jude Law, and in this movie with Robin Williams. And I feel like it's very that's a very sliding doors moment if it's not Robin Williams and there's like a lot of casting what-ifs around who that part could have been and who was interested in playing it over the years. You know, I... I love picking out which scene I would choose as the most emblematic of the performance when we do these top five And would episodes. it be, in those scenes, would you have picked Damon in the scene? In, in the Goodwill hunting scene? Yeah, like when you're thinking about emblematic Goodwill hunting scenes, are they because of Damon or are they because of Minnie Driver, Robin Williams, or Ben Affleck? It's got to be both. I think the great stars like allow other people to succeed while they're in reserve. Like the scene that I picked is the perfect for each other scene where Will and Sean mm-hmm. are talking in his office. And he's like, I went on a date last night. And he's like, you need to see her again? And they kind of go back and forth about that. And you can sense that it's really more of a Robin Williams scene. It's Mm -hmm. really more, not because it's some big, loud, noisy monologue, but because he is getting under his skin. He's interrogating him. He's figuring out who he is. And it's how we learn who Sean is by letting him get underneath Will's skin. And that's like the sign of a great movie star actor is somebody who knows how to punch and then be punched. You know, and he gets mm-hmm. punched a lot in Goodwill Hunting, and that's part of what makes it so good. Um, I love it. I, I, I'm not ashamed to to be basic about loving Goodwill Hunting. It's just <laughs> a great movie. <laughs> it's just a really great movie, and it, it doesn't really work without him. Do you guys think that you would appreciate it as much? We would admire it as much if he hadn't written it, or we didn't know that he was sort of like the engine behind the movie, just as a pure performance. You know, the reason why he's a movie star is because of the origin story. You know what I mean? Like, I think that there were a lot of guys from that time period who kind of looked like him, kind of made some similar movies. And he just had the, he just had the story, man. And he knew exactly how hard to sell it. I don't mean this in any way as a critique. I just mean like, that's like, 
one of the like four or five like indelible Hollywood myths you've ever heard is these guys just in their stupid Hollywood apartment with this script workshopping it and you know not you know Rob Reiner not doing it and like the, the this whole making of that movie is so so iconic. He he can't be Matt Damon without Ben Affleck and I think he also this movie doesn't work with Affleck as Chucky as well as you said it's two people together within the context of the movie and also in the origin story. Yeah. Who, who do you think has had a better career? Affleck or Damon? Damon. Yeah. I mean, movies-wise, if you want to bring in directing and producing right. and all that Just stuff. Just career full stop. I, I, I mean, it's hard to say anything other than Matt Damon at this particular moment. Uh, Matt Damon's batting average is way higher. He does not make the turkeys that Affleck really does. Yeah, though, I haven't gotten in my We Bought a Zoo joke yet, but, like— Here's the thing. <laughs> we Bought a Zoo! I think that, like, We Bought a some, Zoo some and Promised Land, though, those movies have, like, a higher floor than the utter, like, the shittiest Affleck movies, though. That's true. I, I would I would lob Elysium your way or— Monuments uh, Men, not his fault. Not his fault. Yeah, not it's not your fault. <laughs> I mean, the Brothers Grimm. You know what? What do you guys think of his performance in Eurotrip as the punk rock singer Donnie? It, he's just such good cameos, man. Yeah. yeah, his cameos rule. Maybe that's what ultimately puts him over Affleck. Affleck has a Best Picture winner under his belt. Yeah, fairly notable. So your number one was the talented Mr. Ripley. Yes, you said what you feel you need to say about that. Goodwill Hunting was two, and Goodwill Hunting is two, and talented. Yeah, and Ripley's number one. I think so. I just, in terms of, it's the outlier on the list, and I think it's the outlier in his entire career. I think there's also something, rewatching it, I was struck by, again, it's one of those who else could play it, but his decision to not immediately show the hands and the show his hand and the way he descends over the course of the movie. And also, there's an argument that the talented Mr. Ripley character, not even an argument, probably, like, definitely unstable. So there are some mental issues. If you were making this movie in 2019, mm-hmm. you would have to you diagram the mental health very differently. I know they're remaking, they're turning it into a series. I'm curious to see how they do it. But Damon clearly sees him as someone as who is just kind of making impulse decisions and who is swayed by the power of other people. And it just kind of tumbles in from each other and he and the character discovers his power as he goes along. And I think that's so fascinating. And yeah. that's the hardest thing to do is to pace pace the performance across two and a half, almost two and a half hours. Really long movie. A lot of fucked up things happened in that movie, by the way. <laughs> that last hour, yikes. Really, <laughs> really, really tough. It's 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 quite intense and severe. Also features uh, just truly hilarious Philip Seymour Hoffman performance. Amazing. The Philip Seymour Hoffman intro. We're we're, we're far afield here, but when he pulls the, the the sports car right into the cafe, oh my god, it's just good stuff. Don't you just want to fuck every woman once? That's I believe that's his ca- signature <laughs> that is line. What he says. Um, Chris, number two, rounders. I hesitate for like two seconds. I'll re-raise, and he makes a move toward his checks, and he looks at me. And then he looks at his cards, and he looks at me again. And he mocked it. I took it down. Did you have it? I'm sorry, John. I don't remember. Yeah, this is my number one. Yeah, so uh, this this to me is like the kind of the same argument about Goodwill Hunting I would make about Rounders, which is like there is no earthly reason that he shouldn't get fucking rolled in every scene he is in. He's in, mm. it's either Edward Norton, John Turturro, Martin Landau, you know Gretchen Mall, Gretchen Mall, 
Famke uh, Jansen, <laughs> all the heavy hitters. But he is in, he is in every shot almost, I think, of this movie. Mm-hmm. And he is the voice of the movie, uh, sometimes to a point where you're like, wow, this is just mostly a Matt Damon podcast, like when you're watching it. <laughs> Um, the thing that I always have loved about Rounders, aside from the fact that it's just like one of the most rewatchable movies, it's about something I'm very interested in, all that stuff, is you can see while Damon's in this movie how much fucking fun he has in movies. Like he is in he's playing scenes with with Norton where you can tell there is almost like a light in his eyes where he's like, I can't believe I get to be in a scene like this. This is awesome. And I know that that probably shouldn't go in his like pro co- column, but I, I do like identify with it. I identify with his joy at making a certain kind of movie. And I think that that really comes across here. But more than that, I, you know, you've watched this movie the first hundred times and you're just like, oh, Malkovich, the fucking Oreos. This is amazing. And then like the hundred first time, you're like, dude, Damon's actually incredible in this scene. Damon's incredible in that scene. Damon's incredible in that scene. And you realize that like all this flash going off, but one of the reasons why you keep going back is because of Mike McDee. I yes, I I think that it, the, the, the the movie gets a lot of credit for kickstarting the poker boom. In addition to the two thousand one World Series, maybe two thousand three World Series of poker, and I I think that that's fair. But I think the reason that it kickstarted the poker boom is because Matt Damon is this is his rare actual everyman performance. It is his. It is as close to Jimmy Stewart as he gets. Where you're like, I could I could be a law student. Yeah, I'm kind of broke. My girlfriend kind of hates me. I have a dirtbag friend. I have the professor that I look up to who gives me wisdom, who maybe I have to borrow money from. There is a lot of relatability in the Mike McDee character and also a lot of aspiration. You know, sitting down with Johnny Chan and taking a hand down from the best player in the world is something that people daydream about. But in some ways, I say people, I mean me. He's the Chucky character in this movie. He's the guy who's like, you got a fucking sign hanging on your back. And Norton is Will. Norton is the guy who's throwing it all away. And it kind of works for Damon to be that. It's true. Um, so Edward Norton recently appeared on Brian Koppelman's podcast, The Moment. And he told the story of how he got involved in this movie. And he almost didn't do it. And he tells this long-winded story about how um, Warner Brothers really wanted him to do Runaway Jury, the John Grisham adaptation. Yeah, John Cusack did that, right? John Cusack did it. He signed on because Joel Schumacher signed on, but then Joel Schumacher's Batman movie bombed. So Joel Schumacher was like, I can't just keep doing Batman Grisham, Batman Grisham, because he had done The Client earlier. So Joel Schumacher pulls out, and Edward Norton has signed a pay-to-play deal to to perform in The Runaway Jury. And he was like, I wasn't really that into it. My agent was really trying to talk me into it. And I kept looking for a project to get me out of it. And that that sort of relationship slash competition that you mentioned earlier with Damon and Norton having both going up for a different John Grisham movie, uh, The Rainmaker, and not getting it is part of what drew him to Rounders. He wanted to be in a movie like this with a guy like that making a movie like this. And it goes back to that punch-counterpunch thing that Damon does so well. Like, he can really hang and even he can overwhelm everybody in this movie, I think, except for for Malkovich. Malkovich is is playing a different instrument. He's playing he's playing the tuba. Yeah, him, he is money. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody else is playing the violin and he's playing the tuba and it's it works. It's a beautiful sounding tuba. But uh Damon just he just he's just in the pocket the whole time. He's just, there's never a false note for him, from him in the movie. There's there's no false notes in Rounders full stop just so you sure, know. Just great. need to make it clear to you. Yeah, that that, why are you looking at me as you're saying that? Just I need to affirm my love for that movie. <laughs> We're all aware. This is a safe space. Um but I, it is uh it is 
in some ways more uh, movie star making than a movie like Good Will Hunting, which felt which felt like a confluence of events. There was like a whole hit, like a history behind it. And Rounders was a slow burn. It was, it was a lot of people discovered it over a long period of time, and it affirms like how someone like Damon gets stuck in your consciousness. So that's my number one, Chris. Your number one was The Departed. Departed. We've shared all of our What's your top two? fives. My number two is Good Will Hunting. Okay, just okay. like Amanda. Um, there's so many more things that he's done. Mm-hmm. He doesn't. He doesn't have that like. I don't know, that snooty, I wouldn't show up for this kind of attitude about anything. Like, he is hilarious in Thor Ragnarok. Mm -hmm. He makes a cameo in Deadpool 2. He makes a cameo in Unsane. He makes a legendary cameo, I would say, in Interstellar. Legendary. Mm -hmm. Which I think is is really good. To go, you don't know he's in it, he pops out of that pod... And then he's an asshole. Like, it, it's it's kind of like a real shock in that movie when you get that far into it and you're like, is Matt Damon going to find God out here? Like, what is going to happen? <laughs> and he's a prick. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. Yeah. yeah. The, the One of the supporting performances I had a hard time not adding, which I think is very good in a movie that is not necessarily great, is Syriana. So George Clooney won the Oscar for Syriana, but you could make the case that it was Damon who should have won for this because he's do, it's, it's sort of him doing the departed figure. Do you know who his wife is in that movie? Who is it? Amanda Peet. Is it really? My wife, Amanda Peet. My wife, Amanda Peet. That's, I have seen Syriana. All I seem to remember now is like George Clooney's wearing a fat suit in it. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. I think he gained the weight because his Peet threw his back out because of it. Not that I'm like George Clooney, you know. Is a true artist. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And Matt Damon is not. What are some other ones that were hard for you to leave off the list? I have, I'm Ocean's 12. Yeah. She just has a special place in my heart. What about Ocean's 13? What about the nose? When he plays? wears the nose, yeah. I, you know, the Brody. The Brody. Come on. <laughs> I wouldn't say it's my it's my favorite. I just think Ocean's Twelve is really good. And Bill and Matt Damon were talking about how no one liked it at the time, and it's misunderstood, and people are angry. And I was like, not by me. I understood. Whatever. Uh, I had the informant on the short list, which it, as soon as you were talking about. The voiceover, I mean, this is the vocal performance. The narration by Matt Damon in that movie is fascinating. He really should do podcasts. Margaret, very upsetting. Never, We'll never forget it. Saving Private Ryan. Mm. I didn't list this, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's Same just, thing. Again, it's cocky list. asshole. Yeah. yeah. Uh, 30 Rock. Oh, yeah. Just a great- a pilot? Yeah. yeah and he, right. Carol, I think, and he dates Tina Fey for yeah. like four episodes. I, I have I'm fucking Mac Damon on the list. As do I. I have the Oscar speech on the list. I'm just gonna go ahead and put the Bill Simmons podcast parts <laughs> one and two on the list. I'm not getting paid to say that. Just a really They're delightful really podcast. And he just starts talking about Boston sports with we, you know, and, know. and there's no it's fucking guys. It's just he like <laughs> shameful. I know, but it's, this, this podcast is canceled. He actually, is the stereotype of that. Yeah. It's great in terms of everyman performance. You can't really get better than that. I would say those, are, but I left off like 15. There are a bunch more. Anything else you want to? Spotlight school ties, yeah. Uh, he's great in school ties, yeah. He apparently also an evil prick, yeah, yeah. He's apparently in the stands at Fenway in Field of Dreams in that huh. shot. I did not know that until doing him. research on this. And we wouldn't be the same without him. I mean, we don't know, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Butterfly effect. Uh, and I think that's it. I think that that's pretty much it. I would, I just wanted to shout out 13 for, for the nose, okay. Do you, and the Ellen Barkin stuff. Should I make a bid to defend downsizing? 
I honestly thought you were going to put it on your list, and I'm impressed by your restraint. I mean, I did put Dogma on my list like a fucking asshole, but um, no, that was a good look. Thanks, I like that. I appreciate you. You've always had my back with the Kevin Smith takes. (laughs) You guys were of an age at a time. It's not him having your back. You're one time of your generation. Me and my girlfriend in my freshman year of college. Oh boy, at the airport? No, I visited her (laughs) in uh, at her college, and we went and saw Mallrats twice. You've told the story on like nine yeah. podcasts. Have I? Yeah. 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 And in and your personal life as well. Man, am I getting old? Am I just forgetting? No, it's just it, Kevin Smith is really important. <laughs> He's just an important guy. Um, downsizing is good. That's my I that's my take. I think people were like, it's time for us to cancel this movie, and that was wrong. I think they're not everything about it works. I don't think that was the problem. I think nobody saw it. No, well, that that was that was a problem. But people people took a huge issue with the Hong Chow performance. Oh, yeah. And except Hong Chow did. Except Hong Chow was like, I was doing this on purpose. Yeah. This is this was the character I created. Um, nevertheless, like Matt Damon, as you said, has worked with so many great filmmakers over the years, and this was his chance to get a shot with Alexander Payne, who I think in, up until Downsizing, you could say, you could look at every movie he made and be like, somewhere maybe just barely south of a masterpiece, like he was had a pretty unblemished record, mm-hmm. and this is the first movie he made where people were like, actually, no. And part of that was the marketing, part of it was it might have been too high concept, might have been too cute. I have another explanation. You know what I'm going to say. Mm. Kristen Wiig in that movie. And he's not, it again, and I think part of it is the marketing. I think he even said on the podcast recently that people went in thinking it was going to be like a Honey, Saturday Night the Live. Kids, yeah. Shrunk the Kids, in part because that's what you associate with Kristen Wiig. And instead, she's supposed to be part of like a high concept dramedy. I, no, thank you. Yeah, I, but I just, I did think that it was in keeping with a lot of what Payne does, which is this like searching existential drama with great jokes. And that's what all of his movies are. And the movie is making an honest effort to talk about like what happens when you get into your 40s what is it like to be a lower middle class person in america what is climate change really going to do to our society like most studio comedies are not even interested in one half of one thing yeah and that movie's interested in like five things it speaks to like the kind what his taste is because obviously even the bad movies that he's made like we bought a zoo or promised land which he's very instrumental like he co-wrote promised land and i you know obviously was like uh, you know, he does We Bought a Zoo and and it's like, you, you can see the idea that they thought was good there mm-hmm. somewhere where they were like, this is going to be like really heartfelt family drama and it just gets fucked up somewhere along the way. And like, I, I was weirdly rewatched like a bunch of Promised Land and I, I was just like, I can't believe this movie got made. It, like this Gus Van Sant movie, right? I think it, he directed it, right? It's Gus Van Sant from a script that Krasinski, Krasinski and, and Damon, Damon wrote. did yes. about like fracking and and small farms in Iowa, I think. And it's it's just like, I can't believe like Jason Bourne was like, it's important I make this movie. Yeah. Well, and made it in a way where she was like, this should be a big hit, right? It's also like a weird puzzle box con man yeah. movie too. It, it's, it's a, it also, I think, suffered a similar fate to Downsizing where people thought it was going to be one thing. They thought it was actually going to be like a Bruce Springsteen song come to life. And it's not quite that. It's a little bit more bait and switch than that. And that's maybe the weight that he has to carry as a as an everyman quote unquote movie star is people think that every movie is going to be the same, which might be why he keeps making like Elysium and The Great Wall just to keep people on their toes. Yeah, the other thing that Promised Land and Downsizing, as you described, have in common is that they're both just it's kind of a downer. Mm-hmm, I don't really mm-hmm. think people, I mean, people will accept really screwed up circumstances from Matt Damon, as I have evidenced by my list that features The Departed and Talented Mr. Ripley. But just a, like a bummer, a depressing yeah. movie, Matt Damon down and out without any sort of. Um, I think that's why comeback. The Jason Bourne movie yeah. didn't do as well. It's because it was just ultimately like pretty 
kind of a downer movie. I mean, yeah. it was, didn't have any of like the romance that the first three did. Yeah, he he has actually been since The Martian. He's it's been a little bit challenging. Mm-hmm. It's the Great Wall, downsizing, and Suburbicon, which we have not mentioned, which is just a I think that was purposeful, hugely unsuccessful movie. Isn't that also ways. Clooney? Clooney directed it. Yeah, and you know, Ford versus Ferrari is the first starring role that he's had since then, and. I think it, what did you make of it? Did you, did it scratch some of your Matt Damon pleasure centers or was it a little bit too abstract in terms of what he's asked to do in the movie? He, as you noted, he is not the shining star in the movie. It's Christian Bale, but he is kind of actively leaning into not being the shining star. I thought he was very charming. I thought when Christian Bale and Matt Damon were on screen together. Dynamite. Dynamite. As you noted, he does play well off someone. And also sometimes you just want to watch two movie stars hang out. The movie doesn't do as much of that. But it is, it's an old-fashioned movie star, beautifully made race car movie. I mean, I'm fascinated to talk to you about cars and whether you like cars that much and you know how many I'm curious how many people in America care about cars I don't know it's funny that you mentioned that when I spoke to James Mangold he was like I don't care about cars and it's a fascinating to spend two years of your life making a movie like this and not really caring about cars because it is it is under the hood yeah but it might not care about cars but it definitely you can tell that he cares about filming the cars mm-hmm. and the athleticism and the technical ability that comes into that and it's beautifully done all of those shots are great but I'm like oh okay this is a lot of it kind of felt like the opening of somewhere you know Uh, when he's just driving the car around for forever (laughs) I was like oh great I love this movie Le Mans is a very long long race I have a question about Ford Ferrari but no no spoilers no spoilers how swole Iacocca amazing tremendous yeah it's a deeply revisionist portrait of a of a beautiful auto executive um but he's he's tremendous was he beautiful no john john bernthal oh, is, is beautiful. a beautiful yeah, Lee Iacocca. Yeah, man yeah. Lee Iacocca, you can look at the cover of his memoir it yeah. was not a beautiful man and uh, i appreciate the poetic license that mangold took with that yeah there's a lot of candy in the movie it's very fun to look at you know who to root for you know what's gonna happen for the most part but that's okay it's very comforting and still exciting I loved it. I think it's really fun. Um, it is definitely an evaluation of uh, a lost masculinity and also an evaluation of the the dying embers of the movie business. There's no question to me that it's an op- operating metaphor around that. Um, Chris, uh, there's two 2019 Matt Damon movies. Which of these two do you think will be best remembered? The first is obviously Ford versus Ferrari. The other is Jay and Silent Bob reboot. I mean, I know which one you and I are going to go see opening yeah. night. Trench coats. Great. You know? God. Snoochie Boochies. Yes. Great I want, stuff. Please get me out of you this You love narrative. to see it. Snick, snick. Let's go. <laughs> I'm, really, I'm really unhappy. Thank you so much, Amanda Dobbins and Chris Ryan. This has been a top five Matt Damon performances conversation. Now let's go to my interview with the writer-director, James Mangold. Delighted to be joined by James Mangold. James, thanks for having me in your office. No problem, Sean. Welcome. Um, So I'm looking around and I see all of these beautiful physical objects. And I'm reminded a bit of the movie that you've made, which is very much a physical objects kind of film. And I was thinking about your career and where you've come from and the films that you've made recently. A lot of filmmakers are moving towards IP. You were a little bit ahead of the game on that. And you were doing something now that is very classical. I'm wondering when this movie came to you and what your reaction was when you saw the script. 
Well, when I uh, first saw the script, it was in a different form being made by a different filmmaker, but I, um, and it was something I just started tracking in a way, um, hoping that it wouldn't happen in the configuration it was in and that I'd get a chance at it. And that was back in 2011, I believe. And, um, I just found the story really interesting. I really, um, I'm not a big motorsports guy. That's not how I connected with it, but I think that the characters, in Carol Shelby, Ken Miles, Henry Ford II, Enzo Ferrari, um, uh, Lee Iacocca, on and on. These are all really interesting characters at a moment when the world was still um, flexible to passion. Um, I mean, I feel, I fear, one of the part of the romance of that period is that it's kind of the last gasp of, um, Mavericks innovation, a kind of ability to take risk that, that has been boiled away in kind of modern corporate culture. Um, I mean, obviously risks and good things still happen, but it's, you have to push your way through this kind of labyrinth, this gauntlet of market testing and kind of business science that now exists around the idea of what sells and what people want. And there was a time certainly when this country with the United States became a great innovator, um, where, um, and, and, uh, so many of the great inventions of our modern era come from this country. And so much of that innovation was, was a kind of maverick entrepreneurial spirit. Um, in many ways, I view this same time, kind of the fifties to the sixties as kind of the death of that, that pure spirit. And in the same way that the Western, is a, is a kind of um, mythical universe about the death of the kind of open range and and pioneer spirit, if you will. That there's that there's these different historical periods that capture these things. Anyway, for me, it was that it the idea of making an adult themed, grown up movie with dynamic action, um, with heroes that were flawed, interesting. Um, didn't speak in two couplets and then you're on to the next 12 minutes of action that there was a kind of, that I'd be asking the audience to live through both a drama and an action film. Uh, and that that's what turned me on what I saw in it. The script was huge and epic and went in places that we, I ended up trying not to go trying to focus more on Shelby and miles particularly, but also the reason the script didn't get made, I mean, the 2011 you're talking about, and it certainly was getting developed earlier than that. That's just the first time I saw it. Um, the reason the movie didn't get made is, is what you were discussing, which is that it wasn't an IP project yet. It was very expensive. And so you have the challenge of, uh, and the fear, the challenge of convincing a studio to make a movie with an, a story idea that is essentially a kind of unproven story arena. And that all ties back around into the world of the movie in another way I connect to it, which is in so many ways, the characters in the film are trying to convince Ford or other kind of corporate committees to, to take a risk on something that they don't understand completely to just have faith in people as opposed to having the whole pathway mapped out. And I think that's such an important part, certainly for me in my experience coming up as an independent filmmaker and entering the world of studio movies, um, a big thing for me has been recognizing how important it is to establish a level of trust or faith in the corporate entities you're working with, or else you can't innovate at all or do anything interesting. 
Did, did you self-identify immediately with that concept? There's a very important scene in the film between Henry Ford II and, and Carol Shelby where there's a kind of convincing that goes on. Did that was that reflective? Yes, I really like I worked on writing that scene and I really um I mean we did a lot of work writing on the movie, but the that scene is huge for me. The red folder scene. Yes. yes. And um it was my idea to do this thing with the red folder to try and almost make visual what uh what Shelby was trying to explain. And um what I love about that scene is it is about just human energy, meaning that it's a man walking in. For those of you who haven't seen the movie, I apologize, but it's a, I'll try and set it up without spoiling the movie. It's, it's a scene in which Carol Shelby, Matt Damon's character is called in Henry Ford II's office essentially to be fired because they've lost a major race. And, um, and that was exactly what Ford hired. That is exactly what Ford didn't hire Shelby to do, which was embarrass the company. And Shelby ends up turning the moment through a singular piece of kind of verbal Tai Chi into a kind of moment where he has Ford on the defensive and has secured his job for the next year, as opposed to fighting for his job, ends up in a more secure job place than he ever has by essentially turning the tables on Henry Ford II and kind of illustrating for him how their failure is in many ways to and a, a symptom of the failure of Ford to adapt or be flexible to reality or to believe in someone as uh, to believe in a person as opposed to um, what I think business had rallied around at that point, which is the supremacy of the idea, the well-tested idea. So you mentioned that you know you needed to scale back this story. And also it seems like you had to convince the powers that be to, to make this film. So what happens after the opportunity arises to actually make the movie? What's the first thing that you do? Right. I get together with um, Jez and John Henry Butterworth and we get to work on trying to shape the movie more. Um, one of the things I'm after is A, reducing some of the scale of the movie and B, the movie had a lot of races in it. And, and I think there's kind of a cliche of sports movies where you kind of have these like 30 second montages of, of a game or a race. And then you go to the next one and you have a little music and you cut to the scoreboard and the game's over and you're kind of watching this team or, or athlete advance or move through a series of quote historic races. And one of the things I really wanted to do, and part of this comes from my ambivalence about motorsports, is that I wanted to really try to put the audience in a race, a sustained race, where you felt the ups, downs, strategy, tactics, fears in the race. And that to me meant doing less races, but longer ones um, and uh, culminating um, as this film does with a almost 50 minute race um, in which um, I would say to the crew very often, I think we're doing saving private Ryan in reverse, you know, that there's, it's like, like that movie movie opens with this masterful tour de force action piece of the storming of Normandy. And I think that for me, the idea was we're going to build to this race in Le Mans. And I wanted it to be not just kind of a series of flashy vignettes of the race, but that you feel what Le Mans is, which is essentially um, a 24 hour race, which is something I still think audiences have a hard time conceiving what that means. That means the car is running and racing from 4 PM on one day till 4 PM. The next day it's driving the distance from Los Angeles to New York 
um, in 24 hours at high speed with cars exploding, revving, trying to knock you off the road on highly twisting, turning country roads. And as, as Matt's character, Carol Shelby says in the movie, that means night. That means 12 hours of the race is in blackness. Um, and that, um, driving continuously and you're talking about at, at speeds well in excess of 150 miles an hour, um, approaching two or more. And, and that to me seems like a battle in and of itself, which you could only understand if you somehow live in it. And, and I kind of analyzed my own ambivalence because I do like sports. Why do I not care so much about motorsports? And I felt like most of it is because I feel like you're just watching these specs go in circles and on TV same relationship to it. Yes. And, and I thought about it and I thought about how, you know, most often, so you have these panning shots of cars going around and then an aerial shot and then a cut to some quick pan and then another aerial shot. And, and there's some little video Chiron telling you who's in the lead and who's in second. And the color analysts are kind of explaining why yellow car is in the pits or blue car is pulling ahead, but you don't know. And they don't know because no one knows what's going on inside the car. And so I felt like the whole secret to making a race in an elongated fashion, really exciting would be to do the same thing we, they did in, you know, 1940s, world war two cockpit movies, or certainly even in star Wars movies or anything else, which is to put you behind the wheel behind, um, uh, the windshield and feel what it's like to race this car. And, um, and understand every tactic, every fear, every mechanical malfunction or problem from the point of view of the driver or the other heroes that are in the pits, but at ground level, not where an audience sits. And that became kind of the, the other focus in writing was, you know, even though you're writing with images and sounds and, uh, not something that you can necessarily solve with dialogue per se, but we were writing, um, what we thought could be an act and it is an accurate depiction of the events that transpired in that, that 1966 race. I'm so interested in that concept of being ambivalent about motorsports. So what's most appealing aside from the themes? Is it the physical challenge of trying to achieve a movie like this? Well, I'm a practitioner. I like to think of myself as a practitioner of cinema. So the, to have a world with its own unique rules, like every movie to me is science fiction. You know, sometimes, you know, when I make movies that are more, um, like certainly an X-Men picture, or I consider doing movies in other quote universes or people are always, will use this term when they do meetings, like, or they'll talk to my agent or someone and they go, they're looking for someone who knows how to build a world. Right. <laughs> and, and for whatever reason, I'm now on that list of quote world builders. Right. But every fucking time you make a movie, you build a world. If you're making a movie about Johnny Cash and Memphis in the 1950s, you have to build the world. The audience knows nothing. They know nothing of what the country music scene was at that moment. They know nothing about who was in Memphis and what did it mean and what did Elvis look like when he was only 24 and when did he hit and when did Johnny hit and what does he come from and where did he grow up? And the mythology of those characters is just as requiring of world building as making a movie in some kind of um, uh, IP universe. And even more so because too many people think it doesn't. So they skip over what I call setting the table or allowing an audience to come into a story with a sense of time and place. And most interestingly, what makes it different than now? Why are the rules different in life then? 
Um, obviously there's obvious ones like when you're making period films that women are subjugated, that people of color are subjugated, that, that, um, that even among white people, working class people are, are very separated, that the, the, uh, that the cell phone, the ability to call for help, the, the ways our lives have changed with technology don't exist. And in a way you need to almost make that clear to an audience over again, because we've come, become so, um, used to that. So when you get to it, when you're asking what turned me on, if not motorsports, well, I don't think the movie's about motorsports. I think the, uh, any more than I think Rocky is about boxing. It, like, and I don't think Walk the Line is about country music, meaning that that those are worlds and they are backdrops, but that Walk the Line is about falling in love with a woman who you can't be with except on stage and about this unique contradiction of how how do you – how do you, what do you do when the person you love most in the world, you can only be with at 30 minute intervals in front of 10,000 people. And obviously the movie's about a world of other things about kind of family pain and the loss of a brother. And, but all those things are much more what that movie's about, for instance, than quote country music, which isn't even a topic. It's just a, a bin at tower records. It's not a, it's not a theme. It's just a place. And, um, similarly, motorsports is just a backdrop just like a western is a backdrop it's why this is the worldview by the way that has me moving from one genre to another without thinking about it very much because i think we spend so much time separating our art and our people frankly just kind of playing identity politics even with our art in which well why is a western a western isn't really all that different than a noir picture if you think about the mechanics and neither of them are that different than samurai pictures so why are they all in separate bins why are they well maybe it makes sense for audiences in the rental in the dvd rental store or wherever or online but from my point of view the mechanics like as if i were a car mechanic what i have to do how i have to wire the engine how i have to make this car run is no different for a western or a movie like Logan or, um, or a noir picture. And, and that, um, dramatic film like Girl Interrupted, it has more in common with, um, Ford versus Ferrari that for me, because I'm as interested in the kind of intimate moments between these characters as I am, um, in the action. So it's never as simple as, uh, as that. But what I did as an opportunist and an artist is I did look at the world of racing and go, those cars are beautiful. The speed is high. The stakes are life and death. These are good places to make a story about friendship, about um, holding together, about love, about, um, about funky characters trying to survive in this conforming of most conforming of all worlds with the added storytelling octane if you will of the racing and and that because too often again we segregate our dramatic films from our action pictures in which our action pictures become movies aimed for 12 or 13 year olds hopefully with a few grown-up jokes that make us feel attended to and then the dramatic films become 11 million dollar movies that play for two weeks and go to streaming and um and that the idea and I'm not putting myself in the same league, but the idea of what Friedkin and David Lean and, and Michael Curtiz and I could go on and on. There were grown up movies with scope and action that also were adult pictures. Um, and, and where are those? And we can't say, and that's nothing against it, but like, 
you know, um, Marvel movies are many things, but they're not, they're not Lawrence of Arabia. So the, the reality is, and so much of the consternation and finger pointing that's come up in the late, the, you know, recent media blogosphere about those things with the Marty and the Francis and all that stuff is really just starving people lashing out at each other. Meaning there's not enough movies getting made. So the people who get to make movies start fighting with each other. But the reality is that what it's really about in the same way our politics in our country, we have so many people fighting with each other, but what really has happened is all the resources have been taken by a few and have been left for, for the masses to fight over what's left. And that very similarly in movies, there's just fewer and fewer motion pictures being made. So people are getting pissed off and they're pointing at each other in frustration. And, and that, um, that to me is really interesting. Um, and, and all of it makes me think about how can I make an original movie and the assets of racing and the dynamism. And I know how that will attract an audience and help with marketing uh, allows me in the same way, no different than I thought of Logan as a kind of Trojan horse to be able to do a kind of dramatic picture that you don't get to make anymore with the kind of shield, if you will, marketing shield of a known character. In this case, it's a known, um, a, a known template, which is the sports film and racing, which is in a sense, my limited IP on this one, which is that I have, I still have a chance of attracting a core audience of race fans. That's know? a really interesting concept. I wonder if, have you gotten significantly more conscientious about that with making movies than say when you were making heavier girl interrupted that you knew that this had to be for an audience and that to make a movie like this is more of a privilege now. And that when you're designing the movie, there has to be an aspect that is going to excite people. It's an interesting question. I have to tell you, even when I made heavy, I was aware that I had to, you, I was aware what was happening. I mean, you have two things you balance. I think when you're trying to figure out what movie you're making, one is just what you're, you know, I wrote heavy, I wrote Copland. These are just what came out of me. So they are functions of girl interrupted too. they're functions of where you're interested in going at that moment in your life. But, um, if you talk about the moment I made my first feature back in the middle nineties, um, I was really acutely aware that I was out of step with what was breaking. What was breaking was Quentin and kind of the, this kind of postmodern, brilliantly, uh, crafted fourth wall breaking kind of, um, very cool cinema, cool kind of a, a elevated B cinema, um, and a kind of, um, and I realized however much I admired those movies and I love them still, it wasn't my gig. It just wasn't what I wanted to do. And I didn't think more importantly, if I tried to do it, I'd be bad at it. Meaning I didn't feel like it came naturally to me because what drives me to make movies is the quest to move you or, or a quest to kind of put intimacy on the screen, which is almost the opposite of that whole cinema movement. It's about being clever. It's in a way about attracting attention to the director and the kind of, and the kind of movie quotations. It's very referential to movies as opposed to the characters themselves. The characters are kind of archetypes. Again, all of it's awesome, but not my deal. And that the, you know, growing up, like I loved Elvis Costello and I loved Bruce Springsteen. But they're completely different. The earnest but, and the arch. Yes. Yeah. And, but also, uh, Elvis is very aware 
He's writing lyrics that are very showy. Bruce is the opposite. He's writing lyrics that are almost to the point of, you know, I met a little girl and I settled down in a little house out on the edge of town. We got married and swore we'd never part, but little by little we drifted from each other's hearts. The word little is six times in his first stanza. He is not trying to be flowery. He's using preschool words to write. And I'm much more attracted to the economy and and emotion of, if you would, a Springsteen aesthetic in movies, which was not in favor in the 90s, which gets to when I made Heavy, it was an effort to make like my own version of The Last Picture Show, um, Bogdanovich's great movie, and the, about growing up in upstate New York. In my case, his was about um, Texas. But the, but, uh, and I was very aware then that I was running 100% against the grain of what was happening. My movie was, if anything, overly earnest, yeah, very slow paced, like almost. Uh, uh, literally drawing its inspiration from Ozu movies. And, um, but I was also aware that running 180 degrees against the grain might be commercially viable in, at least on the smallest scale that success is measured for, for independent films that I saw much more detritus on the edge of the road for the filmmakers who were trying to emulate Quentin and failing and kind of making these kind of B-level Quentin movies that kind of everyone's smoking clove cigarettes and driving a dead Dodge Daytona down a highway and there's cool music playing and there's smoke, but it's not the same. They don't have his gift um, for that. And um, so in that way, Heavy found a place uh, in the world somehow and um, Copland was tougher for me because it, it, it again was when it, it was now with Miramax, which is more like a studio, even though quote independent studio. And, um, the expectation at Miramax, I think was that I would make a Quentin like movie and I didn't, um, and wasn't interested in it. Meaning I was more interested in trying to make a, a movie by my heroes like Sidney Lamette or, or, uh, Martin Scorsese or, um, and I, I will admit, I mean, I was 30 when I made it. It's like I was at an, amazing amount of riches in the cast and um, very Larry little money to shoot the movie with, but the, but I was not interested in doing something like jazzy or kind of um, that there was kind of a dirge or an ode, a kind of Western set in New Jersey. And um, which again, and very earnest. And, um, and I think a little, no quotation marks in that movie. No, it's not. I mean, it's not, People saw the 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 Western influence, but not in kind of homage shots. Right. It was just in the architecture of yeah. the script. This is high noon. He's all by yeah. himself. Yes. He's against the against the people. Yeah, absolutely. And he's outnumbered. Yep. And um, and that was interesting to me thematically. But I was trying not to make it kind of archly framed, and I didn't want to pull you out of the story. And this is, in a sense, I mean, I don't know how interesting this is to you or your audience, but in a way, I'm trying. I'm hoping you see I'm good at what I do, or I'm hoping you're pleased with what I do, but I'm trying not to, when I direct a film, attract attention to myself, meaning that I do think that there's become a modern um, idea about film direction that the best directors are the ones who point at themselves the most during their film. I mean, I think it's where the wonder has become an absolute like fucking obsession now. And there's some filmmakers who are great at shooting movies in wonders. But like when I teach, every young filmmaker wants to do every moment, every film in a never ending 
shot. And I'm like, and what is this thing you're showing off when you do this? Because the scene is 10. What is so sad about a cut? What, what is, um, DW Griffith did them? Like what is, in fact, cinema was invented when they began to cut the, the, the non-cut film was just an emulation of the theatrical experience, the stage experience. What's so our eyes cut when our, when our, when our irises flick from one thing to another, our brains erase the swish pan. We live in cuts and that, and it's, but what it's really driving everyone is they're trying to figure out how to brand themselves, how to get attention as a director, how to get noticed. And that any kind of overt athleticism with the camera becomes a way and a successful way in most cases, critics and everyone respond to, even though it's also a cheat, they're gluing shots together with um, CG technology, the, the showiness of it becomes its own reward. Um, I don't think that's, for me, what I love about movie directing. What I love about movie directing is trying to understand um, story and trying to use the moving image to tell a story in blocks, in carefully wrought sentences, in um, and also in the quest to find something unique with my actors that I couldn't have planned before in a never ending storyboard or previs of wonders or anything that, that part of what the, what's going on on that set on that day emotionally with those actors, because I think that's the ultimate special effect in a way is, um, is, is those moments you find with actors. So it's interesting that you mentioned the, the wonder concept, because I think a lot of filmmakers use that in an effort to not just draw attention to themselves, but to indicate, it's hard to make movies and look at how smart I am that I figured this out. Yeah. And all that said, there's some great wonder movies. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's some, there's, and great directors at it when it first appeared like 10, 15 years ago. And this new generation started, there's a couple filmmakers I'm thinking of in particular that I thought were doing flamboyantly brilliant stuff. But like most things, um, like, um, that are huge events uh, in art, there are a lot of imitators and that that what I'm trying to always draw students attention to is is in the case of those filmmakers who do it so well. Notice how well they're doing it. Notice how they've edited their movie in the camera that they aren't starting on some boring shot of an alarm clock and then a hand hits it and then a slow pen to find the person rolling over and then the, the scenes happening from the moment because they know they will not be able to cut the scene. So they're having to, as they block and stage, edit in their minds. They need the, the most aggressive. Uh, there's no up upcutting of this scene. But I do think, I don't know quite why, I, but I think you're very much on it. I think it's, but I don't think it's, I don't want to put people on the defensive, meaning I don't think it's bad to want people to see you in your art. I just think sometimes in this age of branding where careers are made so quickly, um, you know, I mean, Billy Wilder made 16 movies before he made some like it hot. Um, and the, the reality is that, that a lot of filmmakers now feel the need to become a quote genius or somebody and branded in their first movie or second movie. And the media are only too happy to go the arrival, the successor to Spielberg, the new Hitchcock, the, the, the and, and like someone's made one and a half movies and you're talking about replacing a guy who made 99 movies that changed cinema. 
are you fucking crazy? <laughs> like, and, and I'll admit I've been guilty of that. You yes, know, it's, it's because it's, we're desperate to have our version it, of it, you know, right. We're desperate to own it and to be the first to call it, which is on, right. online, our own way of doing the one you're trying to be there first. So you can point back three years right. from now. Yes. Right. And the, but it's all ego. And I don't think there's anything in you. We all have ego, but I think the good thing is to try and I'm always questioning whether I'm putting myself in front of the story. And, and because my, you know, my parents are both painters and, and my mom taught for a long time, um, at the school of visual arts in New York. So did my dad. And, um, and I remember her when I was a kid coming home and being frustrated with, um, with, uh, students because they were already painting for their first gallery show and they didn't want to learn anything, meaning they were already out of high school, but they were preparing to be famous which is like the Kardashianization of our culture that, that, that no one really wants to get better at their craft because they can see all so many people who are shitty at their craft are millionaires already. So, so, but what I always try and relay to students is, is, well, do you care about your medium or you just care about getting wealthy? Because if you care about your medium, you know, if you care about furniture and you're a carpenter, then you don't build your first chair and then bring it to market in New York. And then the guy or woman buying chairs goes, do you have more of them? And you go, no, this is my only chair. It's my first chair. Anyone normal would go, go back home and build more chairs. <laughs> it's like, why are you here at market? You know, and it's like you've built one bloody chair and, and that now someone writes a screenplay and they're like, why is no one making my script? Well, may, maybe it's not good. B, maybe you need to write another one or C, like earn it because, or are you really happy that shitty filmmakers and shitty screenplays and shitty music is churned out like a factory in our culture? And do you want to be part of that by expecting to make it the first time you shit on a piece of newspaper? And it's like the, so my point anyway, I can't even remember where I was getting is that believing in the patience that people will recognize you and your work. And this gets to what my mom would tell her students is that you don't have to put who you are in your art, who you are is naturally in your art, what stories you choose to tell where you, in my case, put the camera, where you put the brush, what colors you're choosing, how you're painting. You don't have to intellectually brand yourself because you are spiritually branding yourself. Your work, my work is different than another filmmaker's work, not because of the shit in my brain where I'm trying to brand or do do it the Mangold way, but that it's naturally, just like the way I talk is different than someone else talking. So that if everyone eased up a little, I think, and I'm a big believer in this, that your natural voice would come through as opposed to a pretense or an angle or a strategy on how to make it. And which is a wholly different and unnatural, and in my sense, in my own judgment, unorganic way of trying to be an artist. It's interesting that you phrase it that way, though, because I see your films, and this isn't true of every film, but over the course of, I guess, what, 25 years now, you've got films that kind of arrive at the right time for the genre or the moment there was it was the right time for a film about Johnny Cash done in that way it was the right time for Logan it was it's it's in many ways the right time in the way that we're understanding Ford versus Ferrari which is this is an adult drama with movie stars which we don't get enough of anymore and it's easy for me to say to my parents or to my little sister here's why this movie's cool and here's why it's a little bit different from whatever else is at the movies 
is that not strategy for you? Is that just well? It's not fortune? strategy in the sense. I think it's more gut. Like like I was telling you with heavy, I did I couldn't do what they were doing, so I did something else. Mm. I actually couldn't make. Um, uh, Wolverine was as close as I could come to making a kind of IP movie in the mold of what they wanted. And what drove me was what most of the first half of that movie was the idea of kind of making a, a, a Tokyo noir picture and, um, and trying to use the opportunity of the picture setting to allow me to make a kind of Japanese fever dream film. Um, but the process was ultimately not satisfying because I, wanted i mean i love the movie and i'm happy with it but it was different than what when when they turned to me again and hugh came to me again to make another one i it's just about it, it's it isn't about money anymore it's about what you want to live through and i was like i'll do this but not that again it felt and, like you were fixing something well i was i was trying to make it more than just on the wolverine series i was trying to i just i find like i find all the gear and the merchandising and the, I'm a big, by the way, I collected comic books like a fiend when I was a kid. I love comic books, but what I got out of them was something vital and alive. And what I feel out of, out of the world of, of, of fantasy entertainment right now, more than anything in general is merchandising. So the, the, to me, I'm like, story has to be king. The merchandising can follow. George Lucas didn't make Star Wars to make something to be merchandisable. It's even debatable whether he really knew how many films would come from that first film, no matter how much retroactive claims are made. And that the the reality, um, to me, is that you should make the movie to be a single standalone piece of art. And, um, and then in that case, I found Logan so fascinating when I was making Wolverine and I kept imagining the story, I would love what I found would love to tell. What I found so fascinating was his immortality, his reluctance, his um, interestingly. Now these are probably places I identify with him. What I thought of as his um, mistrust of the superhero culture in general. And um, which is why, you know, so many fans are like, why aren't you dressing him up in that bumblebee colored outfit? First of all, he would look awful at it. But second of all, <laughs> The idea to me, it ran counter to character and character is king. They may have gotten away with it in comic because you didn't ask those questions, but I have to make it live in flesh and blood on a screen. And the reality, like in terms of a uniform is why would a character who dislikes being a superhero, who dislikes self-aggrandizement, who hates the narcissism and self-love of other superheroes or supervillains, why would he dress up in a spandex outfit with his trademark blazoned across his chest? It wouldn't make any fucking sense it's just to please a fan it's a it's a it's a merchandising transaction instead of a true storytelling transaction and someone would argue well it's in the comic books they go well that was a merchandising transaction of the comic book because the character was happiest when he wasn't dressed like he was a fucking mouseketeer mm -hmm. why would any guy with the character of wolverine put on a matching rockets outfit with other and be like thunderbirds argo why would they do that that isn't him yep. and and everyone's like, well, they did it because they drew it. And it's like, well, it's a lie or it's a, it doesn't work on screen for me. And someone else can make that movie where, where Logan, you know, to me, it's like, would Han Solo put on the, the kind of rebel, uh, uh, fighter outfit? No, he's always going to be dressed as Han Solo, meaning there's characters who are rebellious and who don't want to be part of any club that will have them. 
and that there's that's part of who they are. And the idea of making a movie like that, the idea, not so much, quote, killing Logan, but the idea also that came to me early in research I was doing of making the movie about what scared him personally the most, which was love. And, um, and in many ways, also something ma- many people recognize, I think the way that movie makes them feel, but may not recognize architecturally, there is no real villain in the movie that the movie is built like a character piece in the sense that the real struggle in the movie is between a father, uh, Charles Xavier, a son, Logan, and a daughter. Um, uh, X24, Laura, and the drama, what drives the movie. Yes, there's, there's some bad guys in pursuit and, but what the engine that drives that movie is a character piece engine in which it's about who loves who, who is taking ownership of who, who is giving, who's hurting who, and that it's the transactions and the kind of quote plot movements have more in common with Kramer versus Kramer or, or than they do with a kind of Marvel plot. Because and and it's why the movie feels so different is that inherently it was built as a character piece more more than an action piece and 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 that's I'm always looking for those contradictions and I'm always looking and I'm always assuming that there's a a possible commercial benefit or market for something that's different as long as it's aware of the audience. I mean, I think I, where filmmakers get in trouble going against the grain completely is I use this expression. Do you want to hit the audience in the head with a hammer? No one's going to pay $14 plus popcorn and travel to get hit in the head with a hammer brutally, meaning yes, life sucks, but they don't, you know, Milos Forman, who was a teacher of mine, he had a great expression where he'd say, don't tell me two and two is four. I know two and two is four. Why would you spend three years, five years, eight years making a movie that tells me two and two is four? Tell me two and two is five. The audience will, the very beginning of your movie, say two and two is five. And then the audience will go, no, it isn't. And then the storyteller says, yes, it is. And I will show you why. Meaning show the audience something new. Take them someplace new with the story that the same story and that's the other thing to get back to ford ferrari that attracted me to this so much is that again without giving away too much it everyone sees the posters and the campaigns for the movie i think they have assumptions about how the movie unwinds and i think the movie unwinds in a different way than many expect at least those who haven't researched the actual historical events and that that was also really attractive to me because i you know, the movie doesn't end when the race ends. And the reason the movie doesn't end when the race ends is because it is essentially a character story and not a race movie. And we're also programmed with these genre assumptions that we think if there's a race and then the race ends, the movie's supposed to fade out. And that that's so much a function of, again, the way we've been programmed. Um, We're dying and complaining for entertainment that breaks the bounds of, of familiar structures, but then we're also sometimes ourselves as audience challenged when something does that at the same time. Let me ask you a question about another one of your teachers. You mentioned Milos. When I saw the film in Telluride, you talked a little bit about Alexander McKendrick. I walk into your office, big sweet smell of success poster on the wall. These are all Sandy's, by the way. Oh, Those are his, these are all his behind me are about 18 to 20 rules that Sandy wrote. These were in the off, in his office in his in, amazing in Cal Arts. Yeah. Okay. I won't read them out loud to, so as not to spoil them personally, but they're 
You're yeah, welcome pretty, to take a picture of them okay. and, 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 and um, the, but they're amazing. And I, they live with me every day. And Sandy had an office, Sandy McKendrick at Cal Arts. He was my teacher. And also I, last two years I was there, I worked for him as his assistant with classes. So I got to take all his classes over again, running a, at that time, mimeograph machine and the early Xerox machines, um, printing, um, printing out all his handouts, which became the book. The, oh yeah, the, these are for, these are in the book as well. Yeah, yeah they're yeah, in the yeah. book, and the, the these are literally what was was in his office. But the, all this is from his book, and his, he had these great handouts that about dramatic structure, film direction. But Sandy, director of Sweet Smell of Success, The Man in the White Suit, Lady Killers, uh, uh, um, The Maggie, whiskey, well, aka Whiskey Galore. Um, did I say what am I missing? I don't know. I'm, there's so many Mandy. Um, Tight Little Island. Oh, that's Whiskey Galore. The Boy, 10 Feet Tall, a terrific um, kind of early uh, version of Empire of the Sun. Um, he's a great movie director. Um, felled in his 50s and early 60s by um, emphysema and lost a lung and became a teacher. Is that uh, why he stopped making films? Uh, well, I think he would ha- he got into a point when the films weren't working. Okay. He got, um, not many I, people know this, but he was directing uh, The Guns of Navarone and was fired um, uh, about a week in to shooting the movie, I believe. And so all the designs script, that whole movie was his, but, um, Sandy was difficult and he was demanding. And I think, um, he had a hard time. Um, it wasn't the first time he was fired. He was a very imperious character, very gentle at heart, but very demanding of his students as well. Kind of reminded me of, um, the actor, John Hausman mm-hmm. in the paper chase, um, the kind of, very intimidating character. And I think, um, powerful intellectual British fellow. Yeah, yes. And, uh, and had seen a lot of history and seen, you know, he had shot, he was a documentarian who shot Mussolini's hanging, um, and was there. I mean, he had been through everything and, but I think his career had gotten more difficult. He was directing, I think episodes of the defenders at that point in, in LA and, um, and the, uh, as Disney was building Cal arts, they offered him, to run the film school there. And he took that position. I think then later kind of stepped back from running the film school to being a great teacher, but he was an incredible teacher there. And, um, uh, I would be nothing without him. I mean, I think that he, he took a, uh, I arrived there at 17 years of age, hardcore, super eight film geek, um, who had been making movies since 12. And I was very adept technically. Um, I shot my movies. I, I edited my movies. I, I mixed, recorded. I would write scores for my movies. Um, but, um, but the idea of what storytelling was, um, and trying to dive into that was something that Sandy really took me through. And he also gave me another great gift was two years in, he told me to join the theater school at Cal arts. And, um, as an actor, he said, you know, they give all these classes for directors and how to direct actors, but they don't, he goes, they're worthless because uh, he felt they were worthless because the, no one's the acting in everyone's movies wasn't getting any better. And he felt like I was kind of a natural performer uh, as a character. And I was an actor in high school doing lots of plays and puppet shows. And I was a backyard magician. And I auditioned for the theater school at Cal arts and got in as an actor um, and ended up spending my last two years at Cal Arts um, in a f- in the acting program, as well as kind of in the periphery of the film program. And um, Don Cheadle was in my acting studio of eight to ten students, among many other talented people. And um, 
And I was in dozens of plays and movement training and voice training and, um, uh, scene work and diction work and, um, Tai Chi. And it was an incredible, um, experience, um, because I let go of all the kind of anal retentive film geekdom for a couple of years and just made, you know, what acting is, is making art with your body and your feelings. And, and, and that was incredibly instructive on how to get to the place where I, at, to that point, um, approaching my 20th year, I had not gotten in any movies, which is, I was trying to find a point. The movies I loved are the movies that make me, that are moving to me. The movies I love are the movies that, 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 that I feel my heart pinched or lifted or, or there's just something deeply indescribable in the picture beyond the style, beyond the photography, beyond indescribably powerful about the moments captured, human moments captured in the film. And that was not something I had the tools yet to accomplish for myself at 19 or 20. And the, but I felt more able to at least begin the pursuit after those couple years acting, because I understood to me how much the technology of film and the kind of characters it attracts like me, we can get lost reading Cinefex magazine and super eight filmmaker and American cinematographer and talking about the new Alexa versus 70 millimeter on Panavision lenses. We get lost in our, our gear and that's, if you want to be a DP, that's great. But on another level, the real job as I, and I really didn't learn this until, uh, you know, after CalArts, I started working and I got many breaks and met many other great filmmakers. Um, Mike Nichols also I ran into and many filmmakers who gave me advice and I could see what they're really gifted at is making something human happen for a moment in front of a lens, that, something indescribable. In the same way that a special effect used to make us go, how did they do that? That there's an emotional moment or a kind of, a kind of indescribable cinematic moment where you understand human thought or feeling without the words even, um, that someone achieves in a movie that, that makes the movie transcendent and live forever. And that the movies that live forever are not the most expensive movies. They are not the most, um, they're not the cheapest movies. They are the most heartfelt. They're the movies that move you. And that was my goal. That was where I wanted to get. I ask about McKendrick and Sweet Smell of Success because I think some of your best films are about duos or twosomes that have a kind of perilous relationship. So, you know, Walk the Line has a lot of that. 310 to Yuma has a lot of that. You even talked about Kramer versus Kramer with Logan. This movie, Ford versus Ferrari, very much in that tradition of the complex relationship between two people and how it. Well, I think, isn't that the, like what baffles me is how would you make movies any other way? I see. I don't know anything else, but just a bunch of people getting along, trading smart remarks. I (laughs) mean, it's like the Sonny and Cher show. I don't understand how to even make that because it's not what I experience in life. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, even with the people we love most, it is an endless negotiation of what we want, what they want, what, what, how we understand what you said. I said, we're bumping in the dark as, as human beings all the time, trying to figure each other out and and this kind of i understand the appeal of snappy repartee or whatever but that's what i even love i mean you know star, star wars is so beautiful because it's so messy 
I mean, what makes that first film uh, so glorious is just how, how messy and raw and American graffiti-like it is at the same time as it's got all that incredible groundbreaking effects work and dynamism. And that that to me is 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 what I'm always after, is that kind of X factor, that human factor, that kind of thing that as a director, I almost have to guard the ability for the movie to fail in order to protect the chance for the movie to succeed. Meaning that it's a kind of, you know, whenever, when I was making walk the line, everyone had asked, can Joaquin sing? Like in the studio was like, have you heard him yet? And I'd be like, yeah, yeah. He sounds amazing. And, (laughs) and he didn't at first, he really ultimately never sounded amazing. But the point was that to make a movie about a guy whose voice isn't Pavarotti's it's that it's about, it's connected to him, his soul. It's who he is to make a movie where every time the actor playing him opens his mouth, this disembodied voice comes out his mouth seemed to me just utterly wrong. And, um, that so I was protecting the movie's ability to fail. I had people even quit. They were so frightened that Joaquin couldn't pull it off. And then about 10 days before we left for Memphis, Joaquin's voice just dropped to uh, an octave. And we had learned with his band all the songs, playing them up a step so that he could sing them. And suddenly they had to relearn them, playing them in the original chords because he could now hit Johnny's notes. And the and what happened to me? What happened was we just had that same kind of faith that Shelby is asking Ford for, which is just and it's kind of a madness on my end where I have to protect the ability for the for the people to come through. I'm gambling on Joaquin. And, and I'm putting my faith in him pulling it fucking out. And it's not an inappropriate gamble because he's brilliant, but it still is scary for people because no one ever, no one wants to depend on everyone, anyone. They want it to be a given. They want a life to be a guarantee. And so much of what being a movie director is to me is actually assembling the best people you can and then just praying they all do their best work and exhorting them to, but that. And some days they will, and some days they won't, but that the general flow pushes against what anyone's expectations of what this project might have been. If you can keep the environment open or electric on the set, meaning if people are excited to come to work each day, because they're not just here shooting a storyboard, but they're here making something happen in this moment that they may succeed or fail. I don't want to eat too much more of your time, but because of the way that the movie is being, I think, pitched to people like me, which is, as I said, adult drama, kind of a sports movie, but movie star laden and a you know very accomplished filmmaker. Do you feel a burden that this movie has to be successful because it represents something that we just don't have as much of? I feel it. I mean, when my agent, when they greenlit this movie, my agent said to me half jokingly, but enjoy making this movie. It's the last one of these you're going to get to make. And it's what he meant, what he meant was a, a theatrically released non-IP, non-trademark character motion picture that was large in scale, meaning also, you know, I could probably always get a $20 million movie made. Um, but the reality is to make a $90 million movie, a period picture with the expense and all the craft, Hollywood craft required to recreate these moments, it's something that studios are very nervous doesn't exist anymore. Um, uh, an audience for this doesn't exist anymore. I mean, in a way, I'm proud of the movie, so I feel like I did what I could. It's like running for president or something. It's like I did everything I could. So it's up 
to the voters now. And the, and, and by that, I mean the audience is showing up. And I think that for adults that complain that there aren't enough films for them, there is a legitimate argument to make with them that you don't go to the movies enough. Meaning that the, the reason studios aren't making movies for people over 25 is because people over 25 rarely go to the movies and that, um, no one's going to open a restaurant for people that don't go out to eat anymore. And that bum you out. It bums me out, but I feel like it's a good fight. And I feel like the world, I also feel like the, you know, I don't want to be one of those people. Like there were people complaining when rock and roll arrived, that it was the death of music. I don't want to be one of those people, you know, um, in many ways, people complained when, uh, the DVD arrived and the Blu-ray arrived and this is the death of movies, but technology is going to come. Streaming is going to come. And, and I certainly think there's plenty of blame to go around for everyone to just improve their work. Um, theater owners can improve their work. You know, why are they charging like Dolby vision and IMAX are essentially just laser projectors with better sound systems, right? So why are they charging a double cost premium for you to go to see a movie in the best version they can show it? So that means the rest of the screens in America and around the world are just shitty half price screens with dim projectors and shittier sound. Why? If you're worried about people not going to the movies anymore, put the best fucking food out on the table you can. Or else they're not coming back because their home screens are getting better and better. Their home sound systems are getting better and better. And that, that idea of the big giant screen and the shared communal experience will die. Um, I don't feel like one movie can save or lose that, but I do feel like I hope we don't make the case further for the retreat of that movie. You know, I think that would be the short answer. I hope we, we lift the needle as opposed to send it backward. I don't think one way or another, there's many other movies that that are coming out this fall, which fall under the same category. I think because we're got an action and we got some big stars, there's a lot of expectation upon us, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. Well, I think the movie is completely brilliant. Two quick ones for you. Sure. As a, you're not a motorsports person, but if you could drive a Ferrari or drive a GT 40, which would you drive? Ferrari. <laughs> okay. So that's sort of the secret underlying tension of the film is that Oh, everyone thinks from the campaign that the movie is some kind of rah-rah America thing. If anything, I mean, the antagonist of the movie is not Ferrari, it's Ford. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it'll be interesting when people see the picture and react to it. But I think that that's, to me, the battle is not not who they're opposed. I I think in many ways, Enzo is a hero and more like the hero, our heroes, Shelby and Miles in the movie, because Enzo Ferrari is a maverick who created his own company and was making cars and going bankrupt in his pursuit of perfection, meaning he was more of an artist and less of a businessman. Mm-hmm. And um, and I miss that romance, and I certainly don't want to criticize that romance. And so in a way, the movie kind of lures you into this kind of idea that it might be this kind of nationalistic battle of titans, but it's really um, more about can these guys survive their own company. Yeah, I like the UK title just a little bit more. I feel like it's a little more representative of actually what, of what the, the film movie is. is. Yeah. Yeah. I think the trick was that I think the studio felt that no one in America knows what Le Mans is. Of course. Um, yeah. But we'll see. So we end every episode of the show by asking filmmakers what's the last great thing they've seen. Have you seen many films lately? You're showing a film in your office right now. Yeah. The last great movie I've seen, uh, trying to think theatrically or in anything you like, could be old or new. If- Really up to you. Um, 
I've stumped you. No, it's just I, I, I've been so lost on the media circuit of my movie that I have not been watching movies in that way. Um, uh, well, first of all, I love James Gray's Ad Astra. I saw that recently with my son and really, really loved it. But the um, and loved I love James. I've known him a long time. I do too. He's um, but show. he's the best. Oh, he's the best, and he's a great talker. Um, you can only imagine with the two of us in the same room. It would be would impossible. Be yeah, Maybe we the, can do uh, that one day on this show. Um, but, um, but I, um, what did you respond to in Ad Astra? Uh, James's poetry, his patience, um, that, that, that he's, that he's trying to slow us down a little, um, that he's also a very good director of actors and, and scenes and all the craft is, is at a master level, obviously, but that, that, um, we do, we, we have gotten, Ad and video culture and YouTube culture has put so much pressure on movies to be upcut to the point where um, it's like a permanent ADD culture and that um, some of what's beautiful in cinema is getting lost. It's okay if your mind even wanders a moment or you think about your life and come back to the movie. That's part of the beauty of it. The, the assumption that a movie is supposed to be 100% immersive to the point of losing yourself. It's kind of sad. It's kind of a matrixy expectation for art. It's like, I don't want to lose myself watching a movie. I want to find myself. So the, the, that the, I don't want to escape. Um, I understand what the escape movie is, but I don't want to. And I think in that way, James certainly succeeded at that too, but I don't want to, I don't want, I don't want to just eat, breakfast cereal three meals a day i do love the uh, and i think um james is another hero doing that i think there's so many movies i'm excited to see that i wish oh i thought us was was amazing um uh i saw it late um after i was finished i thought it was i think um i mean jordan's just on fire i mean i think the kind of the storytelling prowess the confidence um that he exhibited um in that in the previous film, the kind of sense of innate style. Um, there's a couple I've been, I've been, uh, I can't remember the titles of them cause I'm watching them in Japanese, but I've just, there's this new, there's this, um, there's this new channel on direct TV that runs nothing but Japanese films in Japanese. And there's this whole world of movies, um, that I'm getting exposed to. Um, I'm watching them, not understanding them for the most part. No subtitles? No subtitles. It's a Japanese language channel for Japanese people. But the movies on this channel are just phenomenal and never been seen here before. And they are one of the great tragedies. I'm a huge Japanese cinema fan. Obviously, you could name all the Kurosawa, Ozu, um, Mitsuguchi, on and on and on. But the um, one of the tragedies to me in modern era is is – the French still make movies, the Italians a little bit less, but still make movies. But the Japanese don't make um, very many original, really very few. They're almost all animation now. The original film business in Japan has died. And they were one of the, for an island that small, for a country that small, they were one of the most gigantic voices in cinema. I mean, unbelievable, gigantic voice in cinema. If you consider from the B-level of the Ultraman and the Godzillas to the exalted of Kurosawa and Ozu and on and on, it's like it's a country smaller than California that was making um, movies worldwide appreciated that were redefining the medium. Um, and um, just seeing kind of they're running black and white 50s films 
um, uh, that are so beautiful. Um, that's an amazing recommendation that you don't know the name of the film and you can't necessarily fully understand Neko, them any yet. Neko is the name of the channel on, um, on direct TV. Neko, I think it means cat in Japan. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's a, um, it was just, it's it, 24 hours. They're running amazing, uh, epics, slice of life movies, post-war movies, um, uh, incredible black and white, incredible anamorphic photography. Um, and to me also, I love discovering things where I, it isn't, you feel like you found something unique, like somewhat treasure, mm-hmm. and there's things to learn from it where it's not been beaten to death with analysis. Anyway, there's a few things. Those are brilliant. James, thanks so much for doing this. My pleasure, Sean. <laughs>